What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Derek Walker, owner of Brown and Browner Advertising, a self-confessed instigator trying to start some stuff on the internet. Welcome, Derek. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about fear today and how there's a feeling that you and many other people have that people in this industry, the industry itself is in a constant state of fear. Why do you think this is so? Uh, we forgot our way. All right. We, we, we complain about consultants taking over, but they took over a space we gave up because we were afraid to tell clients what they needed to hear and over what they wanted to hear. And that led to us being fearful of losing accounts, losing jobs, um, appearing to the client to be difficult when no is not a difficult word being difficult. No is being us doing our jobs. So let's just take it down. Diversity and inclusion. We can't solve that because white men are afraid of dealing with it or addressing the issue. They fear the idea of the unknown. What happens if we actually steer into this? What if we talk about this? The whole Me Too and everything? They went silent. They didn't talk because they were afraid. Clients said, I need this tomorrow. We are afraid to say no. It takes longer than that. We'll pay you only this. No, we have value. We're afraid to say that because the fear is that somebody's going to punish us. And inside the agencies, that fear has led to smaller salaries, no training, high turnover, just a malaise of we don't know what to do because everybody's afraid. If we piss off the client, he's going to go away. But guess what? The consultants took those, those clients because we didn't tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that when you say the industry's lost its way, that we've lost our way, that at some point we had a way? Oh, God, yes. When was this? Um, I think you got to look at, okay, when we started, when we talk about David Ogilvy, we talk about Leo Burnett, we talk about Bernbach, we talk about all the great leaders leading all the way through the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. These people had relationships with clients that were unique, would, would be considered unique today. They directed the client's advertising to protect the client from themselves. They, they stood up and spoke up. So I think we, we lasted until the recession in the 90s. Mm. I think if you look at the work that came out of Minneapolis and San Francisco and Austin and New York to a part, the young agencies that popped up during the heyday, I won't even call it the heyday, the creative revolution of the 80s and 90s, those shops, Seattle, Portland, they were doing work that was brave for clients, that took chances, that took risks, that pushed boundaries, but they built brands. Mm -hmm. Then the market crashed and the economy crashed. The bubble burst on dot-com first, and then the bubble burst later with um, GM going down, the car manufacturers going, and the banks crashing. Those are two major economic events. And what happens then is everybody's holding on to pennies so hard that you saw a shift. I mean, the agencies in the 80s that I knew weren't the agencies in the late 90s and 2000s. They had lost their heart, you know, but they saw clients pull in and reduce budgets. Yeah. yeah it's funny. As you're recounting that history, it reminds me of a, a thing that I saw which and heard, which was, I'm going to say it's about <laughs> 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. And two things happened, I think, within the space of a month. One is that I think it was a former CMO of Toyota in Australia who was a professor at the time. I'm pretty sure that's what the job of the title was. And, and anyway, he came in and talked to us at McCann Erickson. And he talked about how back in the day, which might have just been the 80s or the 90s, that mm -hmm. either he or his boss and sometimes even the CEO, they were in at the agency at 8 a.m., not every day, but often most weeks to work out like what we're going to do about this sort of stuff. And right around that time, I also read an article which had an interview with uh, an American 
gentleman who was, I think, head of marketing of Microsoft in Australia. And he was asked in this interview, you know, how much do you do with the agencies? And he was like, yeah, not very much. Like he made it sound really unimportant. Yeah. Like it's just junior stuff and bureaucratic stuff. And I was like, whoa, what happened here? And so that, that's kind of like the closest I got to two situations in a very close period of time that might've been an echo of what you're talking about, this Mm -hmm. losing of way. It probably is. I think it is. In the 90s, I started out at Kramer Crassel in Milwaukee, and it was headquartered in Milwaukee before it was headquartered in Chicago. And it, the old CEO was Paul Council. The new CEO is Peter. And I call him, I say Peter's new. He's been CEO for oh, forever. But what people don't realize is you would see on Friday, we would go play basketball at this local park. All the agencies would come out and we just, you know, wasn't even creative. So it was just people at the agencies would play against other agencies. We'd play pickup basketball. There was nothing strange about seeing Paul Council, our CEO, sitting in the stands with the president or the CEO of Wausau, Master Locks, Briggs and Stratton, Johnson Control. They'd be sitting there watching us play. He would go to lunch with them, you know, mm. and you take that for granted when you're in the moment. Yep. But now now think about it. Where will you see an agency CEO walking around with a Fortune 500 company CEO just yeah. hanging out at lunch? Yeah. Well, I've got to say before the series of incidents that I just talked about as well, that mm-hmm. if we had good ideas, we expected our management team to take them and fight for them in front of the yep. C-level of the client. Uh, and in the US, I, I don't know, I, and I wasn't sure if this was just the US, but I've, I've worked with people who run agencies who didn't like dealing with clients at all, who didn't do any of that work, who would push it on to other people and not try to fight for ideas. I felt that was like a huge piece of culture shock. And then also worked with people who don't really have that much face time with major clients in large agencies. And I didn't know whether it was the times or the city or the country. Are you making the argument that it's the times? It's the times. Okay. You got to remember, although Apple and Shyatt's relationship was on again, off again, hmm. Think about it. They were sharing space. Look at Wyden and Kennedy and, and Nike. Hmm. You can almost look at Fallon when they were Fallon McGilligan and the work they were doing. They had to be close. And you, you used the, a descriptor that's important to notice. Big agencies. Hmm. The small and middle-sized agencies who ran hungry. So they hung on to those relationships. The big agencies became profit centers. And that's part of the holding company problem. Hmm. became kind of financial mechanisms more than creative mechanisms. Is, yes. is, that, is that a bit mm-hmm. extreme? Or, yeah. Because I do know people who've got that kind of relationship between senior leadership in an agency, creative leadership and, and marketing. I mean, Anselmo Ramosh yeah. from Gut, who was at David, CCO, he's done a lot of amazing work. He, he seems pretty close to the global CMO of Burger King, Fernando Machado. I think, I think Anselmo was at uh, Fernando's wedding, maybe in the uh, the mm-hmm. main the main group. I'm not, I don't mean to misspeak, but I don't, you don't see a lot of it these days. No, and I think it's by design. We 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 push not we. I think society pushed for a delineation between us. Both sides were are responsible for the separation. Clients used to be at agencies a lot more. I'll give you a quick. I I worked on the dealership network for Nissan. Shy day out of Las Colinas in, in um, Dallas. And there was a meeting where the dealers wanted to do something, and the, the person in management from Shy Day said, We don't do that. If you want to ruin your brand, you do that on your own. We're Shy Day. Hmm. Now, we call that arrogant today, but what he was saying was, We're not going to help you kill your brand. And in that conversation, the dealers, it shocked the dealers. But it also drew a line in the sand and the dealers were like, what? And that led to a conversation in that meeting where he explained, he's like, look, we're trying to do what's best for you. And I've watched those conversations get lesser and lesser. We have no training programs. Mm -hmm. How do you become a leader in an agency when you don't believe in creative? That's our product. But we have major agencies who have leadership that don't really seem to believe they think their their product is profit mm-hmm. and it's not if we focus on our product which is creative solutions 
then profit will come. If we focus on profit, then our product, Creative Solutions, will suffer. Because how do you make more profit? You cut costs. You lower salaries. You reduce the size of staffs. You cut back on resources. Profit-making measures are never about improving the quality of the product. Mm. But we did that. So to diagnose the problem... Because obviously we could get caught up in nostalgia here and I don't think either of us intends to do that. But the idea that we forgot our way, it it sounds like we stopped holding hands with the most senior clients and marketing people and even chief executives in in businesses. Procurement obviously came in. A couple of recessions happened. Uh, People started to find the word no difficult. Uh, Training disappeared. Multiple agency brands got merged into one brand, put in one building, and a sense of identity probably disappeared a lot with that, let alone all the empires and politics and fiefdoms that have to kind of fight through that kind of stuff. So with that in mind, and if we think about this constant state of fear or even refining our way, what what do you think needs to happen for people to help the industry refine its way? I think creatives have to get interested in running shops again. We've given that over. Um, Rob at TBWA New York. Rob Schwartz. Think about Rob runs, Rob is a creative running a big agency. And look at how they behave. Wyden and Kennedy, for all the love or hate we have for them, they never taken their eye off the ball of that they, they're a creative agency. Goodby does this. Leo Burnett had a resurgence or a renaissance where they remembered that for a while their work was amazing. You know, it's not reminiscing. It's looking at these agencies that really are doing well or stronger than most agencies are. And notice how they're quiet about the secret to their success. They'll let the rest of the industry burn and not and they should. I mean, it's a competition. But look at what they're doing. Kramer Crassel's over 100 years old as an independent agency. And they resigned two major accounts in the last 20 years. Resigning the, um, oh God, the job placement account over a Super Bowl survey. There's a lot of brave work being done. But what we do is we look at the holding company model as the model for all of advertising. Mm. And that's not the model most agencies can... Let's be totally honest. We can't follow that model. Holding companies have way more resources than medium and small agencies. Hmm. So how do we behave like that? I judged some of the local addies for Portland this year. Hmm. My God, the work was amazing. These little shops are turning out beautiful work, but you can tell they're asking their clients to trust them. We have got to earn back the trust, but that starts by us owning that we are a creative industry. And the ad agencies don't look creative anymore. Mm. They don't feel creative anymore. What they feel is number run. And this is what we get. Mm -hmm. So just to recap, because I want to add a few things on to Mm -hmm. this. The first is is for this industry to refine its ways to actually claim in a louder way that it is a creative industry, not just a convenient collection of financial mechanisms for people to extract money. The second yes. is for creative leaders to to be leaders of entire companies, not just of departments. And then I guess for the Portland work you saw, a lot of those agencies do tend to have pretty strong, charismatic leaders with a good sense of self and agencies that tend to take some kind of creative stance as well. Is that fair mm-hmm. to say? Yes. There's the saying, a rising tide lifts all boats. I looked at that work and it's so funny that Wyden and Kennedy didn't enter much Nike work. They entered work for like tourism and other things like that. And you're going, my God, I didn't know they did this work because we don't see it outside of our markets, mm-hmm. in our markets. Leadership is, is our failing. We have made, and I have been at way too many ad events, um, just conferences and stuff. When we talk about creative, it was almost something nasty or dirty. Mm-hmm. you know, the creatives. And, and it's, there's a disdain for that. Mm. So a big part of that theme is to put the creatives back in charge. What else do you think needs to happen for the industry to refund its way? I don't think, okay, let me clear this up because some folks will come for me. I think you can do this with an account service person in charge who understands the power of creative mm. or a media person who understands the power of creative. But it's easier to do when the leader 
understands that creative takes time. It frames everything. Our deadlines, our, our staffing, anything. It starts small. We talk culture, and that's a two-edged sword. We talk culture, but without a culture. Leo Burnett, J. Walter Thompson, those two are, well, J. Walter Thompson's gone. But Fallon, Richard's group, the Martin Agency, every one of those agencies had a personality. And some of them have one now. Crispin Porter brought back Borges. I, I think I pronounced his name correct. Burgesky. And I don't know if you need a superstar personality. You need, a, you need somebody who believes in the product. It's like going to a, a dentist or a doctor who doesn't believe in medicine or dentistry, you know? But what we have is an industry where we talk about this amongst some creative friends of mine. We had a civil war in advertising and nobody noticed. For the longest time, the creators were in charge and we were arrogant and stupid. We were just, we were arrogant. We treated other departments like crap. And in the 90s, when everything started to crash, the numbers people took over. Account service took over, business development took over, data analytics took over. And they paid us back for every slight that we did when we were in charge. Yep. And, And we have not made peace inside the agencies yet. So each individual agency just has to ask itself who it is and what they want to be. I mean, yeah. physician heal thyself. Mm-hmm. We tell clients to focus in on your brand, but these agencies have no brand. Yep. I was talking about that arrogance with uh, Sarah Watson, who's chairman of BBH mm-hmm. New York. And I, I grew up in the environment in usually well, for the first decade, either in the digital department or in a digital agency. Mm-hmm. And the worst interactions were with the creative departments because they were just so, so arrogant. And... <laughs> Didn't want to even admit the internet existed. Didn't want to put URLs on uh, ads, even though I know there's different research about whether that's a useful thing to do. But uh, and, and I know that like the revenge of the nerds against the jocks was part of what's been going on in the past ten years. The weird thing for me though, because I get into some of the ad schools every now and then, and mm-hmm. the weird thing is to see that arrogant attitude in a 23 year old copywriter who's never even worked in the industry. Like, where does that come from? They're trained by old creatives. The swagger is still there. And we sort of need some of that arrogance. Totally. But we need to temper it. Hmm. There's a difference between being arrogant and being a sociopath. Oh, dear God, yes. There's a difference in having pride in your work and hopefully in other people's work to do good things together and just needing to be the best in the world and being top 10 on some kind of awards report every year. And, uh, you know, sniffing a bunch of cocaine to justify all your bad behavior as well. And treating women like crap. Oh, there's that too. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, but that's the temperance of leadership. When I came to Kramer Crassel in 90, oh, good Lord, 95, 96, I don't know. I, I've slept since then. They had won a Kelly or placed in a Kelly for their Johnson Control print ads. This is one shop. Now, they had that, and they were also finalists for Mercury Awards, along with One Shows and all of this. One shop. In all of that, they were still, they knew they were good, but they weren't arrogant about it. My first radio production, the two best radio writers sat in there with me and worked with me, and although they were that good, they took time for a lowly junior copywriter. (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. And Part of my learning about how to interact as a creative was watching them, how they treat, and they treated the production company with the utmost respect. They did things that I still do. They would give the talent a talent choice. So after you read the radio scripts, however the creatives wanted it read, they say, okay, we brought you in as a talent. Give us what you think it should sound like. And they would come, the walk back would be just as important as the walk over to the studio because it was around the corner. It was a few Mm -hmm. blocks. And on the walk back, they would talk, they'd dissect my behavior. But they never beat me down. Mm. It was more like a coaching mentality. Yeah. Like a a building mentality. Yeah. And the kids, the people I graduated from the Portfolio Center with may have gone all over the country, but they had the same similar experience. 
And somewhere along the line, we quit doing that. You know, it's mentorship. All right. So I'm writing this mm-hmm. diagnosis slash recommendation down. It involves, to recap, seeing the industry as a creative industry, encouraging creative leaders to take on bigger leadership responsibilities of agencies, for those agencies to take a bigger stance, to have a bigger personality, to maintain a sense of swagger, but also with compassion, and then to explore how to improve their mentorship. Mm -hmm. Two more? One more. Ooh. They need to get back to knowing the client. We just need to know the client. The client, we need to spend more time with the client when it's not a meeting. I've been at agencies where we would go shop the client's store, eat in the client's restaurants. And when you're sitting in a meeting with the client and the client goes, looks at you and goes, well, you don't really know our restaurants. I'm like, which one? We, we go to this so-and-so all of the time. And this is what we see. It changes the conversation. Mm-hmm. And the client realizes you give a damn. So on that, I hear two things, mainly in New York, and they are, I'm so busy. I'm working crazy long hours. I don't have time to spend with the client or even leave, like necessarily leaving the building. That's one thing that I hear a little bit of. The second mm-hmm. is that that's what the account team does. And it's not that that's what people expect the account team to do. It's that the account team does it and keeps everyone out of it because they're trying to maintain optics and the kind of schedule of their day. How can people navigate those two dynamics? We find time for whatever we want. You know, um, I don't like that we're too busy. That's a crock. The idea that we're too busy, but the same people screaming about how busy they are are at Cannes. If you're that busy, why are you in Europe? These same people that say they're too busy show up at almost every, can find time to be at events, industry events, all throughout the city. The events in New York are, are never underrepresented. We find time for what we want to find time for, first of all. The second part to that is, yes, that's the account service team's job. But the account service folks have to understand that things get lost in translation. It's not a threat to their job for the creatives to meet the client or media to meet the client or research to meet the client. What it is, is it shows the client that we're committed on all levels to the client. And you get questions and insights, and we become more valuable to the client. And sooner or later, the account service team has to bite the bullet and swallow their ego and ask, is this good? Is it good for the agency that I'm the only person in front of the client? And CEOs and, well, I'll say C-suite people need to override account service folks and go, you know what? Every now and then, I need to just go see the client. I know CEOs and presidents say they're busy, but they're never too busy for an interview. It's amazing how much time they find when the client says, well, you know what? I'm not getting the attention I need, so we're going to move our account to somebody else. Then we find the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then if that's the case, then find the time before the client wants to quit on you. And if you really want this account to stay at your agency, treat it like a spouse. And nobody treats a spouse that they want to stay married to or in a relationship with, they don't treat that person badly. This is all about relationships. You know what? It's hard to take away an account where the client loves the agency and feels respected and and valued. This is just basic relationship crap that we can't do it is that we got lazy. I'm sorry. No, no. What we've done is we've gone, oh, it's so hard. I don't want to do it. I got two boys, 25 and 26. I never liked that excuse. Just do it. Just get up and do it. Mm -hmm. And then when you start doing it, you realize, oh, it wasn't that bad. So the constant state of fear that you're sensing out there, I don't know if you're feeling it, but that you're sensing out there, Mm -hmm. what kinds of conversations are happening about it that we haven't touched on yet? You know, what are people saying when it's just one-on-one? Maybe maybe it's late night at one of these uh, award events and people are like, oh my God, which is probably not what's happening. They're probably trying to have fun. I think what we're seeing is a disconnect between the generals and the troops. The troops aren't afraid. The troops want the generals to not be afraid. They want people to stand up. We are a creative industry without creative solutions. 
there was an agency I worked at, and I won't call their name, but they had three years of operating costs in the bank. They were an independent shop. Three years of operating costs. And the client said something to the CEO one day, and the CEO said, we consciously keep three years of operating costs in the bank so that we are never your hostage. He said that in front of us, in front of employees. You know what that does? <laughs> you know, the troops are like, the troops go back and go, oh, okay, we aren't, we, it starts with the top. If leadership isn't brave and, and honest and true, why should the troops be? Hmm. But people want to be led by fanatics. And I'm not saying that in a bad sense, not the fanatical, crazy fanatics, but the fanatics that believe in the product, believe in a, in a cause. Our cultures at the agency suck because, first of all, the, CEO, the leaders don't walk the halls. Uh, shoot, you walk the halls of your agencies. When was the last time you said? It's amazing how little people sit in a concepting sessions with the creators. So just stop by to see what's going on. Mm. That's something you can simply do. I think the troops feel from what I'm hearing, and you know, just a small corner of the universe because I'm only one person, but folks feel abandoned. Leadership's going to make their money, and if they're layoffs or they're firings, they don't care. They don't, we're, the troops feel the pain. We're not all in this together. Mm. And that's the sad part about how we run our business. But now if we had clients that were disconnected from their, this disconnected from their workforce, and we saw it, what would we say to the client? That's what we need to say to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Get your house in order. Do you feel that this sense of fear also exists outside of the agency world, but in in-house teams? Because we know that a lot of these people and skill sets are now moving in-house. Is the fear palpable there or is it largely within the agency ecos? Oh, in-house is hard to do. I worked at Radio Shack three years in-house. Oh, God, that's so hard. There's a different fear there. You get different fears. In-house agencies struggle with fear, the fear of losing identity. You know, we're creatives, we're ad agencies. How do we stay that with the politics of an in-house agency, it being in-house? We're now the client. It's harder to do. I enjoyed my time at Radio Shack but I also dreaded it because there was that level of politics. Mm. You know, you're too close. We fear losing objectivity. I think the fear is everywhere. Look at the consultants. They're not producing any better work. They're not. They tell the client what the client needs to hear, but they don't produce the work the client needs produced. Mm. So I think it's spread out over everybody. What are politics? Like I have an allergy towards politics but every now and then I'm, I might catch myself saying that and I'm like oh I sound like a kid saying that because like what if politics are the way what if you get to a point in this industry where you just have to do that even if you don't want to do it but not do it you just don't get to not do it like what are the politics to me the politics are you know what you're doing is wrong or not good for the client mm. but the client's adamant that they want this at what point do you say, you know what, this is really going to end badly? Look at, um, I don't want to throw them under the bus, but look at the Pepsi thing with the Jenner, the protest ad. Mm -hmm. You mean tell me there was nobody in the room that could tell you that was going to end badly? What happened was the politics of the room. Everybody in the room said, you know what, I don't want to be the one to fall on the sword over this. We go along to get along. It's agreeing, the politics of agreeability. Mm -hmm. I like how uh, it bothers, and we talked about this at a business summit this Friday, last Friday. Someone said, well, I like working with people I like. I need to work with people I like. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that. I, I need to work with people I respect, but do I have to like them? And that the politics, to me, are this attitude that we all got to get along. We all got to be friends. In doing that, we take away dissension. We get take away disagreements. And disagreements is part of the creative process. People get together and they have each of them has a creative idea. And in that friction is where the idea lives, the, the best idea lives, because different ideas collide and they shape and form something better. Yeah. 
I have to admit the idea of friction I understand a bit better. I used to get I used to get frustrated with what I would have called politics, which is just like annoying noise that is going nowhere where someone's playing some evil game trying to out, like survive everybody else but they're not really playing the game that we think we're playing which is to do hopefully quote unquote good work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I see this might be a really obvious point I'm sure someone wrote about this thousands of years ago, but ideas are arguments. Uh, So they're going to naturally be contentious because an idea is telling people in the world that there's a different way to be. And that is to suggest that they are arguing there's a different way to be. So I think ideas are naturally contentious. And I understand that in a different way to 20 years ago when I sort of got into this industry Mm -hmm. where I I was frustrated with Sometimes it's just bad behavior. It could be passive aggressive. It could be abusive. Yeah. But, but like now I'm like, oh no, it, it probably should be like that because ideas are arguments and rebellions and revolts and f- some kind of battle. And we don't, I don't think we're equipped to do that anymore. Uh, not, a, not just advertising. Mm-hmm. I taught as an adjunct at the University of South Carolina School of Journalism. We raised the whole generation who's adverse to conflict. Mm. So if there's no conflict, how good can the work be? If that's the way you laid it out. Tell me more about that because I, I hear that and I hear it from people who are older than the younger people that they're talking about. Is that really true? And how does it manifest itself? I did a copywriting class. They'll present the ideas. The first three or four weeks of the class, nobody will criticize the work. Everybody's work is great. And it's not, I think it's almost subconscious. Mm. They don't want to do it. And then they don't want to appear to be the only person to do it. And I'm an evil person because the first thing I'll say is, okay, do this. What about this? I don't like that. I think this might, you know, I don't get it. I don't understand. And that pushback, you can see the surprise and shock on their faces. And they're like, he's, he's not agreeing with us. Over time, if I'm consistent as a teacher, they learn that they can object, they can disagree. And that's when the group, the work gets infinitely better. Mm. I find that topic really complex, especially in America. America mm-hmm. is number one at the world in the idea of the important individual. And then from what I understand, the self-esteem movement became a thing in California in the, was it the 1950s or 60s. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like many countries, this country has had problems with stereot- like ne- really negative stereotypes that have had atro- atrocious outcomes on people. And so when we're describing people not wanting to get into conflict, I'm like, I think that totally makes sense historically, and I, I get it, mm-hmm. uh, let alone the baggage that the word criticism or criticize has. Because there's a little bit of give and take, like what we're doing now. You could say, oh, I think it's something else. And I don't yeah. see- that as you either criticizing what I said or me, but, mm-hmm. but also there is legit criticism that is disgusting and toxic and mean and can hurt people. Yeah, so I feel like to even talk about that topic, you've got not maybe not tens, but many many other topics coming together. Oh, definitely. But you have to point out that this is okay. You guys are okay. If two kids disagree, you don't get to just go home. Y'all need to work this out. It's painful. It's a part of growing up. Mm. You see it on social media. Folks disagree with each other. And there's a moment where they're like, how dare you disagree with me? (laughs) And I'm like, well, yeah, I do disagree with you. And no matter what you think, I'm still going to disagree with you if I think you're wrong. Mm. But if you think I'm wrong, it doesn't change how I view you as a human being. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's to separate the discussion of idea and or behavior from mm-hmm. discussion of the human. And usually that does require some kind of familiarity and intimacy with the person so that you, you know where they're coming from because otherwise it would just assume it's coming from a bad place, right? Yes, and that's why Bill Birnbach, whether he deserves the full credit for the, the team concept idea, was brilliant. The longer art directors and copywriters work together, the more familiar they get. And like an old married couple, they could argue and not hate each other. But what we've done is now you have one copywriter for six (laughs) or seven art directors, Mm. and they're never really working together. Well, there's also such a volume of work for some people that Mm -hmm. 
And, and, you know, some copywriters are working in an Excel spreadsheet. I mean, that's got to affect the soul at some level, surely. Wait a minute. How? You know, to bang out 5,000 social posts. Oh, dear God. Then there's, there's a whole conversation we need to have because I don't believe the best of class on the social media platforms are doing that. You know, the, the Wendy's and the um, Oreos and the Reese's Cups of the world, they're not doing, they're not banging out a thousand. What they did is they hired a comedian, somebody quick with it. And they gave them some freedom to, to tell the story. Yeah, we've got that wrong. Well, there's also the 5,000 social posts that people have to write. I'm, I'm totally exaggerating. Yeah. The, the 5,000 social posts that people have to write to be able to publish 20 of them because someone will choose which gets published. Um, so you're writing quite a lot on the internet. What, what are the, some of the topics that really have you heated that you're like, you know what, I'm just getting started on this? Diversity inclusion, leadership. Dear God, leadership. If you're going to make the money leaders make, then you should be able to do your damn job. And it's more than showing up and collecting a paycheck. Agencies shouldn't be soul sick. They shouldn't be sick to their souls. And somebody is jetting around the world making a half a million dollars running an agency. And the work is crap. The retention is crap. And they're still getting paid. What? No. I don't understand that. Leadership needs to step up. As you can tell, that one sort of bothers me. Mm. <laughs> Diversity and inclusion, because we are still doing that wrong. Deep breaths, D, deep breaths. The whole idea of diversity and inclusion, we still treat, and I'll use black people because I'm one of the, I'm in that group and I, I know how we get treated. We treat black people like we have to fix this. But it's not our problem. White men have to adjust their attitudes. There's nothing I can do beyond being ready when the opportunity presents itself to convince my white counterparts that I belong in advertising. But white men are so silent on this. Um, the quality of our work, just all over. And I'm not one of those old guys going, it was better in 1949. No, this should be the golden age of advertising with all the cool tools we have. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we'll ever look back on it and call it the golden age of advertising. So like, what kinds of words do you think, if you're going to point to white male leadership of agencies, what, what kind of words would be useful to hear from them instead of silence? Uh, ECD reached out to me and he said, and it's a simple thing. He goes, can you help me recruit people of color can you give me some names so i can go after them and that, that's the simplest thing it's not like everybody needs to apologize and there needs to be a rending of, of clothes and and ash on the face what it needs to be is just the conversations how can we make this better that's why i love rob because <laughs> when i came to new york for a meeting rob was like let's do breakfast and we did breakfast and we talked about this nobody wants to talk to anyone. Mm. It's interesting that there are certain topics like diversity and inclusion and mental health that my experience of being someone who's published some stuff about those topics, mm -hmm. I do feel a lot of people appreciate it. A huge amount of people try to bob and weave their way yeah. around them so they don't hit them in the, they, they don't get hit in the face. And And part of that I think is that they are difficult topics. They do require people to change their points of view and then their behavior on things. Mm -hmm. And also, because these things are on the internet, perhaps they're worried that people will see them interacting with some, some of this content as well and that they could pay a cost for it, especially around mental health. Yeah, But it's the same. Trust me, it's easier to talk about mental health than it is to talk about race. Mm -hmm. Because... There's a mental health component to race. Mm. I'm amazed at the strength of some of these people who are still working for some of these agencies. I'm just saying, their mental strength, because it's a beatdown every day. And here's the thing I would prefer, I would honestly prefer these uncomfortable conversations happen in person, on a stage. We get real, and by the time we're done, 
we are really and truly feeling like everybody doesn't have to come away from this event and feel good about themselves because that's part of being uncomfortable. We, we got a problem. How do we fix it? Yeah. And sometimes we're saying, well, we all need to feel positive about at the end of this. No, we don't. Some of us need to feel bad because we could have changed this or we could have stopped this. I feel bad when I think about maybe I missed a sign when so-and-so was treating this young lady wrong. You know, I shouldn't feel good about that. And that's the same, to me, that's the same thing. We, we're not willing to feel bad. I'm slow to call a person a racist, really slow. I live in South Carolina. Trust me, I can show you what a racist is. But there's that fear that that's what's going to happen in these conversations. And that's not the point. And sometimes you just want to hear. I don't see CEOs and CMOs and COOs and CFOs and CIOs taking a lead in this. They hire a diversity person. And that diversity person bears the whole weight of finding the solution for this. When it should be, everybody on that team should be working towards this. Yeah. And this is absolutely not equivalent, but it does remind me, uh, I'm nervous that I'm going to trivialize the topic, but it does remind me of times when agencies have created new departments. So there might've been like a head of digital in a massive agency. And that person is is solely responsible for digital revenue when they don't even access the clients through their own group account directors. Like uh, at the same time, I do remember a bunch of years ago, there was a CEO of a holding company and this was a white man, but he was asked uh, about culture and talent. And he said that he, he was the head of talent. He didn't need a head, a head of talent. Did that mm-hmm. fell on him? I don't know if, if there was hypocrisy in what he was talking about, but as soon as you turn these things into arms and departments, do you feel that it diminishes them? Like how, how do you maintain them as central things while also knowing that they do need muscles and support and operations? Like, this is why the leaders have to, okay, first things first, retention, retention at all agencies should be part of the evaluation of management, period, hiring and retention. If you're turning over 30, 40% of your staff, you have a problem, period. But we don't do that because we don't train managers. So yes, have a head of diversity and inclusion. Have that person. Give them hiring and firing power. Let them sit in on hiring decisions and make managers have to justify that. But that person in charge of diversity and inclusion reports to the CEO, not to the president, to the CEO or the highest ranking person. There's nobody between that person. And they engage the CEO so that they have a plan and a hard and fast plan. Hyda Gardner is doing that with IPG. You know, there are some people out here doing it. Look and see who's getting turned down. If minorities and women aren't getting jobs, then look at those resumes. Look at their books as a CEO and go, you know, every now and then I want to see them. Just audit them. You don't have to look at every every one, but just audit and go, you know, show those hooks to me. Because the strange thing is, I've had a couple of young black talented creatives lead their agency. And the CEO come to me and go, why'd he leave? Why'd she leave? I thought she was loving it. Uh, You need to talk to that person. And that's been my recommendation. Call them up and ask them why they left. Mm. And you may not be happy with what you find because the CEO was behind this person succeeding. I'm not saying they're they're not supporting it, but they didn't take an active role in that person succeeding. So they still had to deal with the prejudice and the bias at a lower level that made their day miserable. But they they had a leader who actually believed in diversity, who never understood. And it doesn't even have to be diversity and inclusion. You see that with employees, that one employee that pisses off some middle manager, but the CEO is loving the work. And all of a sudden that person is gone. It's we there needs to be a check and balance, a check, a yep. system of checks and balances. That's what I'm asking for. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I think not only 
do people, more people need more simple language to discuss these things? Because I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people struggle with like the language to use. They're nervous that they're going to use the wrong language. There's also just like practical things. Like I, I know someone who runs a large IT group. I think it's four or 500 people mm-hmm. sort of report in. And then broadly speaking, it's thousands of people. And uh, this person said, it was largely male and from a particular mm-hmm country and the person said, I'm not looking at any more potential hires unless you show me at least, I don't know what the number was, at least five women or five different kinds of people. And the people who were doing the hiring were like, oh gosh, like it put stress on them. Like, where do we find these people? I don't know people like this because they were so insular. Uh, Mm -hmm. But but that's a practical example of putting pressure on the system. And and, you know, if we could give people 10 examples like that, maybe that's a useful way to help change happen. Definitely. I love that idea. The language to me is never that bad. People, if somebody calls me up or texts me or email me and say, hey, I've got an opening. Do you know any, any, any black candidates that might be interested? Mm. I'm like, okay, cool. But I need you to understand, and it's getting to the point, and I'm happy about this with the social media, that people understand you can approach me like that. Yeah. I've, I've, on my end, I've got to show that I'm approachable. Yep. Well, I, I, and I think that a lot of this conversation which is incredibly important, but I think it can scare people who aren't used to it because it's largely held through in their minds through moral and identity lenses. Mm-hmm. The second direction that it starts to take is the business argument around diversity. You know, there, and there, there's plenty of research about uh, wisdom of crowds and diverse thinking <laughs> in, in groups to get to creative things. But I, I think that the power comes when it becomes more of a practical conversation. Like, here's how yeah. you do it. Here's how you do it. You know what? It's been a mess. I'm happy to tell you off for creating that mess, but here are 10 things you can do next mm-hmm. week that will help you make this happen. I don't, I don't hear or see enough of that. Am I just missing it? No, you're not. Here's the other part to it is look at who we invite to speak. There's a bias there. But let me go back and and there's one thing really important that we can do. We need to look at how we judge work and resumes. I have worked at shops, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, where they hired a senior writer, white young lady, who had never written anything in advertising. But they hired her because she was a gamer and a blogger, and she did a good job. Mm. But... In the same sense, when they got a candidate for art director who was a young black guy, they were like, he didn't have this experience. They were so strict on the resume versus the job description for him. Mm. But they were loose for her. We've got to get away from doing that. Mm. We, we either hire people on potential or we don't. But if we don't talk about how we hire folks. Mm-hmm. We sit, you know, and my black friends are saying, man, I, I've sent candidates to some agencies who meet nine out of the 10 things, but that one tenth thing is what they disqualify them for. And I'm going, really, you're going to, you're going to disqualify this person over that. Mm-hmm. It's a skill that can be learned. What's one other topic that you are really lit up about right now? Pay. All compensation. We don't know how to value ourselves. So we've allowed other people to determine our value. Mm-hmm. I, I, once again, procurement's procurement, and I'm not making them evil people. But we're as valuable to a client as an accounting firm or a law firm, and sometimes more. On the agency level, we should be a little less willing to negotiate our rates. We ought to be creative enough not to have rates in the first place. I think we need to find a new pay pay system. I think performance-based may be the key, a hybrid of performance-based and fee. But when it trickles down, how much we can be compensated by the client translates into how much we can pay our employees. And if we don't fix this, we'll never be able to compete for talent. We just won't be. The options are now in-house pay so much better than agencies. So if we don't get our stuff together, we're just going to price ourselves out of the market because we can't pay people. We, we work those few people we have to death. And I think that's the commoditizing of, um, of our skills. We had great writers and art directors and media planners and media buyers and researchers and account service people. 
and we got, oh, I'll throw this in, and oh, good Lord, people will be shocked. Yes, ageism killed us. We needed the old ones to teach the young ones, but we don't have them anymore. You know, we had, old, we had older account execs who understood client relationships and were comfortable with bringing the creators in, into that. That's why we don't have, we have that division. Well, I got to protect my job. We had create, older creators who understood the craft of the work. And when you get the craft down, when you get the basics down, then you become a better creative. We had media buyers and planners who were part of the process. You know, they, there was a time they would bring you an idea of like, you, you know what, you, you, you can do this. This is what you can do with media. We have none of that now. Very little, I'm sorry. I, I, I speak from my small corner of the universe. Mm. It's, it's all about mentoring and education, but it's really about compensation. We can't do any of that if we're being beat up over our prices. Uh, Derek, I, I, look, I, I hope we can work this out. I, I feel like if uh, for people listening, there's at least 20 points that, <laughs> that might not be things you can do right now, but they're definitely mm-hmm. things that you can think about. And that they're largely about having a stronger point of view and taking a stance and a stance for the industry and for yourself as being in a creative industry, doing creative work, having personality to do it, defending the work, knowing how to say no in a nice way if you have to, yeah. having a bit of arrogance and, and taking pride in what you do. And I think taking pride in what you do does cover the idea of mentoring. If you care about what you do, you want to pass it on. So you want to mentor, mm-hmm. you, want, you want to coach, you want to bring people into it from all kinds of backgrounds. So I, I, that's kind of the, what I'm taking out of this conversation. I appreciate you sharing and, your, your ideas with us. And thank you. But I want to finish and make sure I'm clear. I am hopeful. I believe we can get back to where we were because these folks care about advertising. At all levels, we have people who love this industry. The problem is, is we made it a job. Advertising, I came from Pizza Hut before I came into advertising. And I worked on the operations side. And I was working 60-something hours a week and going to school. I was never, never have I felt as, as beat down working in advertising as I did working for them. Mm. And so people go, oh, it's a horrible job. No, this ain't a job. I can show you a job. I love advertising. I think we just lost our way. There's a scripture that says, you forgot your first love. It may be a bunch of points, but it really comes down to that. Once we start having a little more love for advertising as, a, as an industry, all that other stuff starts to line up. So I don't want people thinking, I, I hate advertising. I love advertising. Hmm. Where is the best place for people to find your words on the internet? Ew. Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm mm-hmm. getting away from LinkedIn because it's starting to feel like the Facebook of business. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I'm going to come back to it. I, um, we are in the works of doing the Creative Kumite. And that website will be a different website once we get it up and running. So that, I'll be there too. Oh, beautiful. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Sweathead today. Very happy we could have a chat. A lot to not process, but I, I th- there's a lot to do. It's not about mm-hmm. pro- processing it. This stuff's not difficult. We've had these kinds of conversations for a long time. It's just good to assemble them in a way where you, the next thing is to do a thing that's different yes. and to, to work out how to make some of these ideas and these arguments practical. So if you're listening, what's one thing you can do next week that's going to make at least one of those things better for other people? Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Peace. Mm -hmm. Peace.